it is a great time for venture, even despite all the uncertainty. But as financial advisors, as you know, fund managers, it's about having conviction because you can't time the market well. It's hard enough to time the market in public markets when there's a lot more data. And so having conviction of what you have interest in, invest in, who you trust that will um, make the best decision, has the best deal flow, has the best expertise in that market to invest on behalf of you and your clients. Welcome. You're listening to Alternative Universe, a show for financial advisors, fund managers, and those who want to navigate the diverse landscape of alternative investments and explore opportunities that lie beyond the conventional. Our guest today has become a personal VC hero of mine. He has a way of describing the role of venture and the opportunities that VC can unlock in a way that really has inspired me. A former partner at Great Point Ventures and current partner and of an operating syndicate called Public School Ventures. It's a privilege to have Ernest Sweat. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve, for having me. Yeah, man, it really is. And, and uh, you know, like I said there, Ernest, the way that you speak about venture, I think the way you approach this concept of early stage businesses, I don't want to use the word startup, but um, early stage companies, small companies, the supply chain is unique. And, you know, you've shined lights in areas and how venture is used um, that I hadn't really thought of. And so I appreciate your perspective. It's really exciting to have you here. Again, it's, it's an honor. And um, I think the reason that I've been able to, or just like my style of explaining venture or whatever I'm interested in, is a clear result that like I was raised by a teacher and a preacher. I've always been fascinated with the ability to take complex uh, concepts and make them very digestible. And so when you have a mother who you know, teaches everywhere from you know, starting her career out in ele- elementary school to then ending up in middle school, being able to explain anything from five to 14-year-olds is definitely a task. And then having a, a, a father who was a director of IT for workforce development agencies, a computer programmer. CS grad, but then also his passion is like, he's a full-time pastor. And so like being able to, first of all, combine those two worlds and show that they can coexist. But then lastly, being able to take a very complex idea of like, why are we here and allow different people to kind of interpret it in different ways. And it is, is a hard task. And so me explaining how to scale a company or why uh, venture capital is for these types of businesses, isn't for these types of businesses, or why there's opportunity in these types of verticals that have been ignored is a very is a much easier task than what my parents took on. Wow, man, that's cool. That's a really good background. And I love that you can tie that back into venture. You know, you said something there. I think we're in a transition mode right now with venture. And I want to get into a little bit more of your background, but you just said something around venture that I guess, industries that have traditionally been ignored or industries that quite frankly may have had a lot of influx from venture capital dollars that maybe didn't need it or shouldn't have had it in the first place. And I think we're starting to feel the aftermath of that. Love to hear your two cents. What are your thoughts? It's probably a little bit more than two cents, but- <laughs> I'll uh, let your five bucks. 
<laughs> five bucks. Yeah, I can break a five for it. We are in an inflection point in venture. And before I kind of get into kind of like where I see the opportunities in my kind of thesis, to explain to your, you know, your audience of not the fund managers, but the financial advisors and maybe family offices, the reason that there is a, I wouldn't even say a winter in venture, but just like an inflection point where the model is changing actively is because we had this low interest rate environment. And with that, a lot of money was raised, dollars were cheap, and the ability to scale companies or scale revenue uh, was a little bit easier uh, because money was, in, was, was out there. And so once interest rates started to creep up, production started to slow, you had companies that were the primary buyers. And if you look at, you know, it was really technology and financial services were the primary buyers of this new technology presented by these vendors or startups. When they were like, we don't need as many SaaS companies and SaaS vendors as we once did, that scared the market. And it also scared, you know, with the public markets starting to decrease, then the real evidence for us as venture investors on what our like comps were and what the valuations for the for our private companies didn't make as much sense. And so there's a cyclical relationship in which, okay, when public markets start to go sour, valuations don't make as much sense for the VCs. And then those valuations, which uh, VCs use to raise money at their annual meetings, don't make as much sense to their bosses, the limited partners. And so the limited partners then start telling the general partners, the VCs, hey, you've been deploying at a rapid pace, which quite possibly was the height of the market. So now we suggest that you all deploy at a slower pace. And VCs are now left at this really interesting point where, hey, we've really run up our own operations with growing our investment teams, our platform teams, increasing our funds by a lot, and it may not have worked. And so now we need to figure out what our model's going to be. And this impacts founders now where, hey, I have this amount of growth, even if it's a lot of great growth, but the valuation that I had last round doesn't make sense. So now trying to get anything higher than that won't make sense going forward or in the near term. And so it's just caused a lot of slowing and a increased higher bar for an LP to invest in a fund for a VC to invest in a founder. So all those things are, are working together. Now, where I see the opportunity is, you know, if we look back at that high in, or that low interest rate environment, uh, we were very iterative in the types of companies we were investing in. And so some of the biggest successes were companies that, yes, had a lot of revenue, but if you looked back at it, they were a one point, a, a point solution. So kind of like one feature and they were selling only to really markets that were growing a lot, which was like tech for tech companies or SaaS for SaaS, as I like to say, or financial services, where it was just kind of more financial engineering or arbitrage. On this whole other side, it's not even the other side, the majority rest of the economy, the 81% of GDP is not a part of the software industry. And so... You have industries, you just, you can throw a dart at one and it's like logistics or manufacturing or retail or healthcare services. There's just a ton of industries. They're all facing the same problems, I like to say. So one, the 
legacy systems, whether they were like on-prem solutions or just throwing more manual labor at a problem, those aren't providing the same efficiency returns that they were once in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And in some cases, they're actually providing negative efficiency returns. Second, there's been a change in customer base, whether it's like consumers or businesses selling to other businesses, where they're expecting speed and transparency at an unprecedented pace. And third, we're in the wonkiest labor market of all time. Baby boomers were the largest generation of labor that we've ever had. And they're retiring at an unprecedented pace. And then I read somewhere also that uh, they're selling their small businesses at a crazy pace too. All those things are happening and all it equals up to is that no matter if you're an SMB or a Fortune 100, you're going to be expected as a leader in those organizations to provide the same or better kind of like progress with less resources. And so that's a perfect opportunity set for technology. And that's the stuff that I think is exciting, but it hasn't really been done much. And it's going to, you're going to have to really find conviction in those companies and find the right founders who can create the right product and take advantage of the right tide to scale a company. Do you view that as a, a role that venture capital can step into these non-tech verticals and help kind of align those two opportunities? Yeah, I think, well, I think one is that, you know, Generation X, Millennials, mm-hmm. Gen Z, and then Generation Alpha, they're, they're still babies, but they will expect more technology in their everyday, not just everyday life, their professional life. Oh, yeah. Which will bl- are blurring together more and more, right? I think they will be looking for solutions. Like, I'm fascinated. This is like, has nothing to do with venture, but I am very intrigued with this increase in young professionals buying old school businesses. And if you look at the playbook, this can, you know, people call it entrepreneurship through acquisition. If you look at the playbook, they're just trying to like take an old business that has relationships and use like very basic CRM, new payroll technology and stuff like that, vertical software to help them do their business better uh, and then sell. And so this has happened at a, a large scale of individuals starting to do this. And then I think about the single family home market and how companies, large financial institutions are starting to buy up those. And so what I'm just getting at is there's more sophisticated buyers and operators in these industries is one piece. So they'll be looking for technology to like really increase those operational gains. But then you're going to start to see, and I already have seen a lot of founders who are perfectly made for these industries, whether they grew up in the industry, were an operator and have this uncanny ability to present a North Star to attract technical talent. Or on the other side, you have, other side of the coin is you have a, what I call a humble outsider. So you have a technical or product uh, expert who sees an opportunity in the industry and takes the time to understand the nuance and, and really kind of surrounds themselves around gray hairs or just like, you know, people within the, within the industry that can show them where the landmines are and understand the nuances of the industry. So those two archetypes I've seen and invested in a lot, and you're seeing them, whether they're in retail, insurance, construction, name and industry, 
but a third, I believe, will start to emerge more. And that's kind of the bridge uh, archetype. That's the person who family maybe started a construction business, so they were always around it, but also went to MIT. And so that person, I think, will, will come around more too and really lead the charge of where these industries go and what their customers are looking for. Right. So I, I think that's a super fascinating. It's like the kid who leaves home and goes off to college and then, you know, finds themselves back in the family business, taking what they learned, applying it directly to that. And like you said, I think that there's plenty of room for arbitrage. I was thinking about this as you were telling your story, just with all the small businesses and the retirement of baby boomers selling those businesses. Um, there's arbitrage, but there's also, you can look at it as arbitrage to flip the business. But there's also a very quick arbitrage for margin. So yes. it can be to flip the business or it could be just to operate a great small business. Yeah. And um, I was just listening to a, a podcast the other day and they were talking about how this idea of SaaS has almost become an obsession of entrepreneurs and founders of this getting recurring revenue. But it's not up to us, you know, as an entrepreneur to say this is a SaaS business. It's up to our customers and just because customers don't renew or the revenue isn't recurring and it's not that type of model doesn't mean it's a bad business, right? No. You can have a great business that delivers value one time and the next time the client needs that value, they come back. But it's not, Absolutely. It's not monthly recurring revenue on a credit card, right? Yeah. And so I think that we're at a new point in the economy where you look at small businesses and people are going to start to pivot a little bit. And realize, hey, I can have a great business, whether it's a construction business, a laundromat, even a you know a convenience store. And there's there's opportunity for margin there if I apply what has really been democratized when it comes to technology and tools to operate a business. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is cool. I also like that idea of like, I don't know, I'm gonna think about that more, this obsession of SaaS for entrepreneurs, but also that, that comes a lot from investors. That's what investors want. Right. That's, those are the best multiples. Right. Uh, and historically SaaS for SaaS companies has been the most reliable until it's not. And we're seeing kind of like a, uh, what I expect to be a rebundling, right? Where people start to buy more bundles and not just point solutions, unless you're just like a critical, critical problem and you so solve it 10 X better than anyone else. So that's one thing I need to just kind of clarify. I totally agree, but I think there are more venture backable business models than just the SaaS model. You know, I'm bullish on vertical SaaS because I think they, they have a, a keen understanding of who they're serving. And once people do business with them, they can create this whole ecosystem of like other services, whether it's like, I don't know, like some type of marketplace, financing, fintech, all that stuff. But the other three that I'm really bullish on and have invested in product types are, I think, B2B marketplaces are something that need to continue to evolve and touch literally every industry. And then one that's usually forgotten is the integration layers. So integration platforms, APIs, that's what enables way more growth in digitization is when different applications, different infrastructure can talk to each other. So your view, when we talk about integrations, having the API layer, allowing applications to speak to each other, share data, ultimately for the benefit of the end user, 
right? Whether that's a business owner that's using that to operate their business and gain efficiencies or to deliver a better experience to their, to their end customer. If we're talking B2B to C who owns the responsibility for the integration and like the network ability. Is it the consumer, the business buying these applications or is it the responsibility of the applications to own that integration and build the network for the user? Well, uh, just clarifying. So the applications, is that different than the actual integration company like platform or I'm just trying to get the. So the way I think of it in our industry is traditionally in the last 10 years, integrations have been built between two companies or two companies that own and operate an application to share data and work interoperably. Now it's expanded and there's a lot of integrations and I see more and more now where in financial services firms are taking the baton and saying, Hey, I'm going to build my own data warehouse. You can stop. All I need you to do is dump all the data into the warehouse. I'll build APIs. I'll build the integrations I want and power the applications I want to use. Yeah, I think that's okay, but that still is a little bit more bespoke Mm -hmm. than when I think about what like a Stripe built, right? Or a Zapier has built or MuleSoft. Those are kind of like the gold standards, all in different situations, but them owning and those types of businesses need to be very, very engineering driven. And like, so those costs and that, the gross margin is going to be a little less, especially starting out because you need to have so many engineers maintaining the APIs and, and all that. But if you're able to create network effect and then just help people plug in quickly, then you'll start to see more progress on the application um, layer. Those are the types of companies I look for and have invested in a few that are in different industries. That's interesting. What, what industries do you see or are you looking at right now? Where you think there's opportunity? Logistics, I still think a lot of opportunity there. Retail tech as well. Uh, and truly creating something that's omni-channel is, is very interesting. Healthcare services. So like how actually services get to the individuals? How are they notified? How do we able to like optimize that data that still hasn't been truly unlocked? And then insurance is another Anything that's really confusing or as, you know, doesn't have to have regulation, that one does. But like, I think there's opportunity there to streamline services and increase the value chain. So those are a few. Before I forget, there was one other product type because, you know, someone was counting. So I said vertical SaaS, integration layers, and then B2B marketplaces. The last one for me that's really important is applied AI. And so how to have AI do repetitive tasks and automate processes, given we don't have enough people in, in the labor market, and that's just going to continue, is critical for a lot of these industries, especially if you think about things might change, but engineering talent historically has gone to the fangs of the world and very high-tech companies, but we need that same talent in these other industries, in these foundational industries. And so one way to kind of like not put all of the repetitive task on, you know, the talent that you do get is to have AI do it. So I'm curious, you, you mentioned a few things there, but um, I think it's still true that especially in times of economic uncertainty, where we have some volatility coming back, more conservative employees, which I think on the engineering side, I've met more risk averse 
engineers than non-risk averse, right? So, so um, or risk takers, shall I say? And so, I think that people flee to these, you know, Fortune 100 companies where they can get stability. But now we have this new emerging, I think, opportunity that is becoming more popular. We talked about this earlier, but this idea of fractional yeah. employment. And I'm actually curious from your perspective, from a venture capital perspective, if you're coming and you're looking at a new opportunity to partner with a, a founder who's using fractional engineering or maybe even executive teams, we see this more and more often, fractional chief marketing officers, uh, fractional CFOs. What's your view from a venture perspective? Is that risky or is that smart? It depends on where you are in the cycle. But I will say when I started in the industry in 2016, it was really frowned upon when individuals had contract engineers that were not, that were remote um, because, you know, venture capitalists at the time just couldn't fathom people not living in, this, uh, in the same city, working in the same office, creating a product. And so obviously that's been debunked. But now I think it's about how crafty are, are you as a founder? Are you in this for a marathon or were you just looking for a quick sprint um, and an exit or something like that, which is highly unlikely? And so for me, I would view that as, as, as very intentional and smart because you just want to keep all your options uh, open. An early stage company starting today versus starting two years ago has a vastly different perspective on the market. And I would, you know, I would assume that they are more a marathoner than like someone who just does sprints because there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And so you need to be committed to solving this problem and do whatever you need to do by any means necessary, essentially, uh, to make the company survive and, and, and thrive in that. And so, you know, fractional, I think, employees, especially from the business side, having some, you know, folks who can help on marketing or go to market is great because as a founder, you should be the main seller, but having an extra, you, you know, you, but you don't have the budget to hire a chief of staff, CFO and all those things. So using those services um, are important. The great thing also is there's just a lot of great people who silver linings is like, despite kind of all the turnover and uncertainty, there are a lot of great people who are experienced who are even looking for more flexibility now. And so they know that, hey, I can't commit all my time to you because you're not ready as a seed company or pre-seed company or even a series A company at some points, but they can help you get to your goal. Yeah, I think that's dead on. I'll give a shout out to my buddy Praveen Kanta. But he's really he's ran in financial services and wealth wealth management technology with this idea of fraction, um, and they've since spanned out. But his idea here is like there's been a lot of competition for talent in these very constricted pools, especially when you are in a startup, which inherently is a riskier opportunity. It requires generally more compensation for someone who to take that risk, whether that compensation is through dollars or equity. When you offer fractional. And you're willing to work alongside these other incumbent industries that inherently pay really well and offer a lot of security, your talent pool just explodes, mm -hmm. right? So now all of a sudden, and then you layer in AI there and you can get pretty creative on how to get work done. What's your view on AI? I mean, just as of late, I mean, really just in the last six months, we've seen 
a massive adoption. Are we fizzling out or is, is, is there going to be a lot more investment in this area? What do you think? AI is not hyped because there are going to be some big winners and um, we're already starting to see, even with the public uh, getting its hands on chat GPT on the value right. of a company and a uh, product like that. The issues with AI before seemed like, you know, early AI was VCs would flock to it when we didn't have any other hype cycle to go to. And the issues with it were essentially what problem is it solving? You know, is it just something cool? We have plenty of stuff that's just cool, but like it needs to actually have a problem. And this has been the issue with like enterprise applications for VR and AR. It's like, what, what's the actual problem we're solving? And it hasn't really manifested yet. I think with a lot of those things that I've mentioned before with, you know, labor market decreasing, need for speed and transparency, AI fits a lot of those things now, especially generative AI and being able to actually take a lot of tribal knowledge and transfer it to individuals. There's an opportunity there. Now, with that said, there's going to be a ton of things because, you know, AI is really kind of at least given some comfort to the venture industry on saying, hey, we look, we have this that we're going after. This is why we still need to be raising money. This is why we still uh, need to be deploying money. And so there's going to be a lot of frogs in there that like won't have success, even if they raise a ton of money. And the question there is like with the a lot of the large language models and infrastructure plays being really led by huge entities, even OpenAI, it's been around since 2015 and has support from financial support from you know, Microsoft and uh, Salesforce, and then seeing Google going after it too, that portion of AI might already be one. Maybe not, but it might be as well. And so it's thinking about, okay, what are the other big opportunities and problem sets, opportunity sets that are, that are really created through the evolution of AI? And so there's a lot of stuff there, whether it's like security creation, as I mentioned, the deficit of engineers we have, right? Or employees in general. And so how much can AI really start the coding process for an experienced engineer? So there's a lot of opportunity there. It's always going to come down to like the founder and the market and if they line up perfectly or not. And that's what makes this industry hard right? and fun. Right. And I mean, I think that's just the early stage nature of every industry is how do you apply it? And there's a lot of good ideas and there's a lot of people taking bites at the apple. There's a lot of good ideas that people are chasing that just don't make it, right? And part of that's because of lack of capital. Sometimes it's just early. It's a hard thing to identify. And so, yeah. you know, your background and the role that you've played in this market has been, um, I think, uniquely important. It's it's important across the entire industry, and I think it gets discounted a little bit. That early due diligence, I know for me personally in the role that I played, I've had a few interactions with venture capitalists where they ask, what are you guys using AI for? <laughs> you know, And yeah, um, yeah, yeah. it might not be applicable at all, but it's like uh, you have to answer the question to make it through to the next gate. I just think it's interesting how when I think of venture capital, I think of these early stage companies and I think of, A, there's, there's risk there, but there's a lot of skill that comes into sniffing out the founders and the operators that are onto something that have, as you mentioned, 
Um, I think the, the ability to run the marathon and are in it for the long haul and um, placing those bets. So kudos to you, man. You're doing good work. Thanks. Appreciate how, it. Um, I'm curious. How do you know? How do you know when somebody has it for venture? Um, I think it's a unique skill. If you were hiring someone, building a team to deploy capital, how do you do that? Where do you start? Yeah. First, I want to um, clarify that I'm not because I'm not trying to get uh, a thousand emails <laughs> on like I'm not hiring. That's a great question. I think I'll just ramble and hopefully it makes sense. I think one quality I see is you have to be okay with ambiguity, be okay with things taking a long time to prove or disprove how good you are at this job because it's such a long, it takes such a long time. You know, my friends who are like pure operators have tried venture before and are frustrated with it. And the more I've been in it, I realize why. Because when you're an operator, you have KPIs, you see the progress, you you code, you ship, all that stuff, and you see the results. With venture, something can look great for two years, then look bad for four years, and then look great again 10 years from now. And so being okay with that. I think also having a point of view, understanding that every conversation can help you iterate on your point of view, either supporting it or disproving it. This is a, now when I name all these, it's not a things that p- people always have. It's sometimes it's quite the opposite, but this is what I think people should have. And I think also being self-aware, like understanding what you do and do not know and what you're good at and what you're not good at. That really helps founders and your teammates that you work with. There's so many different styles. I think also just the self-aware piece is like, there's no proven data on what archetype of investor is the most successful. You can find examples of all individuals. So being very comfortable with like, what are your superpowers and how do I make that fit in this industry? And what I look at uh, and the type of founders I seek out, just being very clear on that. Um, but there's, yeah, there's a there's a ton of different qualities. It's just, I think the piece of being comfortable with all the uncertainty, it's, uh, it's tough. Um, on my, on a recent episode of, of my podcast, Swimming with Allocators, we were talking to an LP. He said a quote that I'll never forget. He's like, venture's a heartbreak business. And I responded to that by saying, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. But it's also in my opinion, a career that resembles life more like than any other industry. Expand on that. Tell me more. Yeah. So like, you know, how in life, sometimes you can just meet somebody and you just think like, what the, what was the reason for that? Or, you know, you can have all this faith in something, whether it's like a hobby or, you know, a project you're working on and it could all go to zero. And sometimes it's just like life. If we look at like our lives, like you're in this boat by yourself sometimes and you're just floating and sometimes you'll go this way and a current will take you back another way or sometimes you'll be going with the current and you land into something, find a bigger boat, find somebody to jump in the boat with you and you see where it goes. And so venture is a lot like that. And some people have a perspective or a persona of they always know where they're going. But to be quite honest, a lot of them are just, even of those, some of them do, but a lot of those are not Magellan, they're Christopher Columbus. And so like they run into to something and it's not even the, it's, it's great, 
but it's not even the place that we're anticipating going. And so just being comfortable with that and I think having less hubris and more humility uh, make great venture capitalists. And for a founder who's maybe considering taking venture, um, who's exploring that, what would, what advice would you give them when they're looking at different venture opportunities? Um, what should they be looking for in a partner and maybe a way to kind of narrow down the field? The first question they should ask themselves is, is venture capital right for them? Venture capital isn't the, doesn't really work for everyone based on how they want to run their business, if their business model is seen as venture backable. And so I would suggest first and foremost, talking to other entrepreneurs who have gone down that path, whether they've raised or not raised, uh, getting that experience and seeing, is that something you really want to go down the path? And so if the answer is yes, after that, then it's about, you know, really setting out a task of like, this is the amount of money I want to raise. This is why here's my range of the amount of money I want to raise. And here's what I'm looking for with dilution. And so even having that perspective and going back to those founders and saying, does this make sense? And is what you've seen in the market will help you have more informed conversations when you talk to VCs. And then it's about running a, a very like formalized process where you have your target investors, you go after those, those individuals, and then you also meet others. And so use those founders that you know, venture capitalists that you know from any part of life and see if they would be interested, but then also who they would suggest based on what market you're in and your um, product type. This has been a great conversation, Ernest. We try and keep these things to a consumable amount of time, man. So I'm going to call it. What I wanted to do is ask if there's any takeaways that you could um, you know, just leave with our audience. We're addressing a, a market here where you know, there's fund managers in the private markets. There's financial advisors who are advising and building wealth for LPs, right? For these clients, high net worth, ultra high net worth. And really that value chain is broken. And, um, you yeah. know, what we feel there's a great opportunity to do is not just help educate, but to put the financial advisor at the center of those transactions and allow them to really have a holistic view of wealth for their clients. You know, I think venture plays a massive role in that. Yeah, I think I'll just leave with um, what I'm even learning in my own kind of research project in this podcast is that it is a great time for venture, even despite all the uncertainty. But as financial advisors, as you know, fund managers, it's about having conviction because you can't time the market well. It's hard enough to time the market in public markets when there's a lot more data. It's, it's virtually impossible to do it. And so having conviction of what you have interest in, invest in, who you trust in, if you're a financial advisor, who you trust that will um, make the best decision, has the best deal flow, has the best expertise in that market to invest on behalf of you and your clients. It's about having that and being committed to that because it's a get rich slow game. Theoretically, as you, you know, get more shots on goal, have more time, you will get that return. And so it's just been proven over the, the last 30 years. And so that's what I would leave people is that even despite uh, the uncertainty, that hope is there. It's just, you got to fish for it. Love it, man. We'll leave it at that. Thanks a lot, Ernest. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Alternative Universe. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth Technology and produced by Turncast. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. 
You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this episode right now. For more information about Mammoth Technology and Alternative Universe, visit us at mammothtechnology.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered advice. The participants may have financial interests in the companies discussed on the podcast.